Hey everybody, Eric Trexler here with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Uh, This is going to be a solo episode, and it's going to be all about cardio for health and cardio for weight management. Uh, This is going to be more of what I would call a synthesis type episode, where we are kind of connecting topics and describing how they fit together in kind of an overarching, cohesive way rather than just drilling down into the very granular details of a very specific study or an extremely isolated topic. So it's going to be a wide-ranging episode where we talk about uh, the science related to cardio and then the practical application of cardio if you're interested in improving your health or you're interested in managing your weight. Uh, Now, like I said, this is another solo episode. So I do want to address uh, a little update about the ongoing strike by the Stronger by Science podcast co-host Union. Uh, Now, I haven't had a lot of people asking me about this because the episodes lately have been the highest rated ever. Uh, People are just beating down my door trying to advertise on the podcast, trying to invest in the podcast, Uh, just five-star reviews everywhere. Uh, But nonetheless, I do want to keep people updated. So We had reached a bit of a sticking point. The Stronger by Science podcast co-host Union wanted a brand new Gulfstream private jet. Uh, Initially, I was reluctant to to make that concession. Uh, But nonetheless, I basically called in some favors. I met with some investors for a round of fundraising, and I was able to secure the liquid capital capital that would be necessary for us to go ahead and purchase that jet. Again, I think the last few episodes, the incredible ratings that have been coming in, all the fan mail, I think that made the investors very excited about the opportunity. Uh, But here's the issue. I thought that would resolve the matter now that we had the the funds secured to to acquire that jet. Now the union is saying that they want me to create an endowment fund in order to uh, basically to cover the operating expenses of that jet. So they want me to establish this endowment fund in order to cover fuel costs, uh, crew staffing, and, and a variety of other miscellaneous expenses. Uh, so they want me to create the fund, they want me to provide the initial nest egg investment, but they will not commit to any transparency about how the fund operates. They want me to create and fund uh, this endowment, but they want to keep me completely in the dark about how it operates. Uh, and I have a number of questions about why that's the case. So Um, That's a hard no for me. We are at yet another impasse in those negotiations. Uh, Once again, it is truly terrible what that union is doing to me, and it's a completely illegal strike, and I'm sure more updates will follow. Now, before I get into the content in today's episode all about cardio, uh, just a few reminders. If you like the show and you'd like to support it, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the podcast. You could join the Stronger by Science email newsletter for free by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. You could check out our virtual one-on-one coaching program at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. You could check out the mass research review at strongerbyscience.com slash mass. You could check out Macro Factor, which is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed with an extremely talented team of colleagues. You can learn more about that at macrofactorapp.com or just look for it in the app stores. Uh, And then finally, if you're looking for a discount on supplements that are already very reasonably priced, you could go to bulksupplements.com. You could use the discount code SBSPOD, S-B-S-P-O-D, 
and that will get you a 5% discount from your entire order at BulkSupplements.com. All right, so now moving on, uh, we're talking about cardio for general health and for weight management. And usually when people are adding cardio, we're talking about weight loss uh, in terms of weight management. Now, this episode is not going to be an in-depth look at performance-oriented endurance training. We're not going to cover, you know, periodizing your running so that you can hit a PR at your at your next marathon. Uh, that, that's a wonderful goal to have. It's just not the focus of this episode. We're going to be taking a comprehensive look at basically everything you need to know start to finish about the relationship between physical activity, general health, and weight management. And before we get into the details, I think it's important to cover what I would call the general taxonomy of physical activity, because physical activity can take a lot of different forms. And it's kind of helpful to get a lay of the land and map out how these different concepts fit together. So we've got this big umbrella that we call physical activity. And we can divide that into kind of, it creates like a bifurcated path where we could divide that into two broader categories. The first category would be non-exercise physical activity. Okay, so this is physical activity that occurs throughout the day, uh, but it is not structured exercise, right? So uh, when if you're, for example, a college student and you're walking from your dorm to your class, maybe it's a 15, 20 minute walk, that's physical activity, but you didn't set out to do exercise there. You basically are just ambulating because you need to get somewhere. And, and there are all sorts of physical activities we do throughout the day that are not structured exercise. Uh, you go get the mail, you go mow the lawn, you do housework that involves being on your feet and moving around. All of these things are physical activity, but they are not what we would call structured exercise. So we can divide physical activity into non-exercise physical activity, and then the second category would be structured exercise. Now, within structured exercise, we can break that down even further. Of course, there is resistance-type exercise, and then we have cardio-type exercise. So there, there's a lot of different terminology that's used depending on the context. Sometimes people say cardio, sometimes they say aerobic exercise, sometimes they say endurance training. And ultimately, uh, some of these terms become less appropriate in certain contexts, you know, so you could talk about this general category of, ca uh, of cardio and say, well, we're going to call it aerobic training. But what about when we do higher intensity forms? It, it's really more anaerobic than aerobic in that context. Or you could say we're going to call it endurance training. But what about when you're doing sprint type exercise and you're really more training for sprint related power outcome rather than endurance per se? Uh, so these terms, sometimes they just don't fit as well depending on the context. So I'm just going to use the overarching term cardio. And what we're talking about there is structured exercise that is not resistance training and generally falls under the category of what we would consider aerobic exercise, endurance exercise, sprint type exercise. You get the idea. So within cardio, we can break that down further into two categories. One would be interval training and the other would be steady state training. So Within interval training, we could talk about sit or sprint interval training, uh, and that is kind of the highest intensity form of interval training where each work bout, you know, with, with interval training, obviously, you're going to have intervals of work 
and intervals of rest that kind of cycle back and forth. With sprint interval training, we're talking about a maximal intensity sprint during those work intervals. So that is kind of the highest intensity form of cardio. There's also high intensity interval training. And you could argue that sprint interval training is kind of a subtype of high intensity interval training. But with high intensity interval training, we have a little bit more flexibility. There are many applications of high intensity interval training that are not actually maximal sprints in terms of intensity. Usually with high intensity interval training, you're trying to get your heart rate up to at least 85% of the maximal value. Uh, but you might find some inter- uh, some high intensity interval training protocols uh, where you know heart rate is still getting into that range above 85% of max, but but you certainly wouldn't call it a maximal intensity sprint. Okay, so we can kind of establish uh, a a spectrum of intensities when it comes to cardio. With interval training, sprint interval training is the highest intensity, but we've also got high intensity interval training, which could theoretically be a little bit lower in intensity. Then we can look over at steady state training options under this cardio umbrella. So we've got moderate intensity steady state training where max where heart rate is we're trying to get it to somewhere between 70 to 84% of maximum and then there's low intensity steady state uh, which is basically anything below 70% of max heart rate uh, but generally speaking we're trying to get it somewhere between 50 to 69% of max heart rate. So again when we look at uh, physical activity in general. We can focus in on structured exercise, and then within that, we can focus in on cardio. And under the umbrella of cardio, we've got this spectrum of intensities. Sprint interval training, high-intensity interval training, moderate-intensity steady state, and then low-intensity steady state. And as you can imagine, there is an inverse relationship when we look at the relationship between intensity and duration. So sprint interval training, your actual work intervals are going to be extremely short in duration. Uh, You know, usually it's only 10, 15, 30 seconds when we're talking about sprint interval training. When we talk about low intensity steady state, I mean, this could be going for, you know, a, a, a three hour hike, you know, it could be very, very long duration because of the low intensity. So Now we've got an idea of this taxonomy, and we're going to get into structured cardio, but I want to begin by focusing on that whole other side of the taxonomy, non-exercise physical activity. Uh, And the goal here, you know, we're going to talk about non-exercise physical activity, specifically as it pertains to just general health rather than than weight management per se. And when we look at the goal of non-exercise physical activity, I mean, some of it is just activities of daily living that we have to do in order to keep our life moving. You know, uh, we go we go check the mail, we go to work, things like that. Uh, mow the lawn so it doesn't become overgrown. You get the idea. Uh, but sometimes we will intentionally include some of this non-exercise physical activity uh, for the goal of just improving general health. So we might not be saying, I'm going to, you know, go to the gym for an hour to do cardio. But we might incorporate some physical activity into our day in ways that doesn't really reflect what we would consider structured exercise. So the benefits of incorporating some of this physical activity, um, one of the the benefits is that we have the opportunity to break up long periods of sedentary time 
and we have the opportunity to replace some of our sedentary time with active time, right? So instead of being at your desk for eight or nine hours straight without any movement, the idea is if we can incorporate some non-exercise physical activity throughout the day, maybe during your lunch break at work, we can break up this large chunk of sedentary time. And then in our leisure time, if we replace, you know, watching television or, you know, uh, you know, playing a video game, something like that, nothing wrong with watching television, playing video games. But if we can replace some of that with more active leisure time activities, there might be some benefits. And so when it comes to the overall health benefits of physical activity, uh, they are obviously numerous. So there's a great paper by Piercy and colleagues. I'll link it in the show notes. They talk about uh, physical activity guidelines, but they also talk about just the general benefits of physical activity. So uh, increasing physical activity can lead to lower risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, uh, uh, several different cancers, all-cause mortality. A lot of times when people become more physically active, we'll see an improvement in their blood lipid profile. Uh, we'll see uh, reduced anxiety symptoms, lower risk of depression, improved sleep, improved cognition, physical activity. The, um, the benefits really are very impressive, very extensive, very wide ranging in terms of the number of different uh, elements of health that can be impacted by physical activity. So I probably don't have to do a lot of work. If you're listening to the Stronger by Science podcast, you probably have a general appreciation for the fact that physical activity does promote health and wellness. But what I want to talk about here are a few ways to uh, increase your physical activity without necessarily committing to a cardio program or what we would typically call or typically associate with a structured exercise program. So one of the ways that we can increase physical activity, again, with the goal being to break up sedentary time and increase the time that we spend each day doing physical activity. One method is by using uh, a, a term that's kind of new in the literature. It kind of popped up within the last decade or two, but the term is exercise snacks. And I know the name is kind of cheesy, but the concept is legit and, and it is rooted in some pretty good science. So Exercise snacks, uh, you know, we think of a snack as being kind of a just a little nibble rather than a big extensive meal. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. An exercise snack is an extremely small portion of exercise uh, that, that typically is going to be done with high frequency at regular intervals throughout the day. So rather than focusing, you know, with a typical structured exercise program, we often focus on how much activity we are accu accumulating, uh, either in the exercise bout or across the day. With exercise snacks, we're really focusing on the frequency and the timing of physical activity. So rather than saying, oh, I need to do an extra 45 minutes of physical activity today, the focus is how am I going to break up my sedentary time throughout the day? And so it's taught, you know, you really focus on, uh, when throughout the day you're going to basically insert these little exercise snacks. So there's a really nice review by Islam and colleagues that was published in 2022. Uh, I'm going to link it in the show notes. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, they, they give a great overview of exercise snacks. What we're talking about are very short bouts of vigorous exercise that's going to re be repeated several times throughout the day, uh, usually in pretty regular intervals. And the purpose is very specifically to disrupt 
prolonged periods of sedentary time. So for example, an exercise snack could involve less than one cumulative minute of exercise uh, throughout the day. And so that would look like, you know, taking several like 10 second or 15 second exercise bouts that are kind of distributed evenly throughout your workday, for example. Um, now, when we talk about doing an interval type approach to physical activity with less than a minute of cumulative exercise, what that means is there's going to be a big uh, emphasis on efficiency and a big emphasis on intensity. So if you look at some of the literature on exercise snacks, usually uh, perceived effort is, is well above a five on a 10 point scale. So people are doing, you know, seven out of 10, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 uh, in terms of their perceived intensity level. So it you get the idea here. It is regular intervals of very brief physical activity done uh, with, with a relatively high level of intensity. Now, I've given some guidelines about cumulative exercise totals being less than a minute. Uh, I've, I've given some guidelines about, you know, the relative intensity of these efforts. But I think it's um, important not to get too bogged down in the details. Uh, there, there's no specific rule book that you have to follow when it comes to applying the concept of exercise snacks. The general premise is very, very simple. And, you know, just staying in line with the general premise is enough. You don't have to follow some perfect protocol. So the idea is, you know, if you have an eight-hour workday, let's say you work in a conventional office building, eight-hour workday, you might say every two hours, so we're going to have four total intervals, or, you know, you can allocate them however you see fit based on your daily schedule. But let's say every couple hours-ish, we're going to do a 15-second bout of exercise. So maybe you have the opportunity, depending on your work environment and your work culture, perhaps you can uh, make your way over to the stairwell and say, I'm going to do a 15-second bout where I just run up the stairs and just cover as many flights as I can in 15 seconds or as many steps as I can in 15 seconds. So you would just walk over to the stairwell very quickly, you know, a 15-second burst of exercise, you know, walk or even run up the stairs for 15 seconds. And that that is your exercise snack. And then you go back to work, uh, you know, work for another hour and a half, two hours, go back to the stairwell, do it again. And so you can see how, you know, if you do that four times, we're only talking about approximately a minute of exercise, but we are breaking up those longer chunks of, you know, eight or nine hours of sedentary time. We're breaking that up with these regular intervals. So uh, in the interest of practical application, like I said, you don't need to focus too much on the exact intensity, the exact duration. The general premise is if you're looking at a schedule for your day and you say, I might legitimately be seated for like eight hours straight here or, you know, two sections, uh, two um, intervals where you're just sitting for four hours straight, you might want to go in and break that up with some activity. And in the interest of being practical, there are a lot of viable modalities that can be done, you know, in a typical workplace or in a lot of different settings. So it could be stair climbing, jumping jacks, really any body weight calisthenic exercises. There's a lot of options here. And of course, the simplest one is just doing a brisk walk in the hallway or a brisk walk in the parking lot for just a short period of time. And so when we look at the preliminary evidence uh, in this area, like I said, really great um, review paper by Islam and colleagues in 2022. Um, when we look at the research here, 
when we see uh, you know these exercise snacks, generally speaking, when they're implemented relatively frequently throughout the day, when they're implemented with sufficient intensity, there are studies indicating that they do confer some health benefits related to cardiorespiratory fitness levels, cardiometabolic risk factors, and vascular health in general. So exercise snacks, very, very simple. If you were just interested in general health rather than weight management and saying, how do I make physical activity part of my day, exercise snacks would be one option. Another method that's very simple and very popular is simply tracking your step counts. So again, this is not doing a structured walking program necessarily, but we're just focusing on, am I getting enough steps throughout the day in order to support, in order to support overall health and wellness? And so this is the complete opposite of, eh, I wouldn't say complete opposite, but it's a very different concept than exercise snacks because rather than focusing on the frequency and the timing of where we're putting these steps, you know, exercise snacks, like I said, very, very much focused on frequency and timing. If we're just trying to track our step count, the focus now is on the cumulative amount of physical activity throughout the day. And we're using step counts as a proxy to get an idea of our overall activity level because theoretically on a day where we have higher step counts, that means that we're spending more time up on our feet, being active, ambulating, moving around, etc. So step counts, very straightforward, not going to spend a lot of time belaboring the point there, but a question that comes up a lot is, well, how many steps is actually enough for supporting general health and wellness? Uh, there was a paper by Jayetti and colleagues where they found a linear dose-response relationship where more steps was associated with lower mortality risk. And they found that that linear dose-response relationship went all the way up to about 17,000 steps per day. And, and at that point, the, the data set just becomes very sparse. There, there aren't that many folks in studies that are available who are routinely getting above that. So I, I, if I'm remembering correctly from the figure in the paper, it's not that they found that benefits stopped at 17,000 steps. It was more that there was just a limitation of how much data they had beyond 17,000 steps a day. Uh, but there are, are some papers that suggest there's a slightly more nuanced relationship rather than just saying more is better. So there is a paper by Paluk and colleagues where they found that mortality-related benefits were basically maximized at about eight to 10,000 steps per day for individuals who are under the age of 60. And then for individuals who are 60 or older, they found that uh, some of these mortality-related benefits were actually maximized at a lower number, which was about six to 8,000 steps per day. So by looking at these two studies, we get a general understanding of if we're trying to use step count as a proxy for physical activity and we're trying to promote health and wellness, we get an idea of what kind of numbers we should be shooting for. So uh, if you're 60 and older, probably shooting for a lower number than people who are under the age of 60. Um, and what we're looking at is getting up into that range of 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 steps per day with the general understanding that more is broadly better, um, but there's probably a point at which we start to see diminishing returns. So um, getting up into that 8, 10, 12,000 step per day range seems like a really good idea. Whether or not there are extra benefits to be had beyond, you know, getting into, you know, 14,000, 16,000, that becomes a little bit more debatable. Um, and, and I think we can intuitively assume that there is some point 
at which the return on investment gets smaller and smaller as you get into those higher ranges. Now, you might be looking at those numbers and looking at your smartphone or your Fitbit or whatever you use to track your steps, and you might be saying, I am not even close to those ranges. How am I going to get from where I'm at to 10,000 or 12,000 steps per day? And my recommendation would be to do it slowly and incrementally, okay? So uh, a really uh, practical way to do that is by increasing your daily step goal by 500 to 1,000 steps every couple of weeks or every few weeks and just kind of slowly work yourself into the intended range. And what I would encourage you to do is when you look at this range, if getting to 12,000 steps per day seems completely unfeasible at this point in time, aim for 6,000, aim for 8,000, you know, set a lower boundary goal, get there, make it a habit, and then you can reassess whether or not it would be feasible to get from 8,000 to 10,000 or from 10,000 to 12,000. Uh, you, you know, you want to work your way incrementally so that it doesn't seem like a completely daunting and unfeasible task. Now, we've got exercise snacks. We, we could rely on step counts if we're trying to increase physical activity to support general health and well-being. But there is a third method we could lean on here. And the third method is a little bit more nuanced. It requires a little bit more attention, a little bit more planning. And in some cases, it does start to blur the lines between non-exercise physical activity and structured exercise. There's a level of planning here um, and a level of focusing on the dose and the duration and things like that where we are starting to blur the line and this is getting pretty close to structured exercise depending on how you apply it. So uh, the third method here is just aiming to meet the general physical activity guidelines that are provided by governing institutions and medical organizations. So I mentioned a, Piercy, uh, a paper by Piercy and colleagues from 2018, which explains some pretty simple physical activity guidelines. I believe it was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, if memory serves, but when I put the link in the show notes, we'll see if my memory is correct there. Uh, but the guidelines that they, that they lay out basically suggest that you aim for 150 to 300 weekly minutes of exercise at a moderate intensity. And when they talk about moderate intensity, they're talking about moderate MET levels, which would be somewhere between 3.0 and 5.9 METs. And a MET is a unit uh, that, that it, it stands for metabolic equivalent, or I guess I should say it's short for metabolic equivalent. And METs uh, basically are, are a, a fairly simple, interchangeable way of quantifying energy expenditure more broadly. And so if, if we talk about doing exercise at a low MET level versus a high MET level, we're basically getting a proxy for exercise intensity and expenditure that occurs during that exercise. Uh, so one metabolic equivalent is basically our energy expenditure per unit time at rest. Um, and so when we talk about using METs, we're basically just, in a relative sense, scaling things up from the resting value uh, in terms of our energy expenditure. So these guidelines, like I said, they recommend 150 to 300 weekly minutes of, of physical activity at moderate MET levels between 3.0 and 5.9 METs. Or they recommend getting 75 to 150 weekly minutes of physical activity at what they call vigorous MET levels. And that would be a MET value above 6.0, or I should say equal to or greater than 6.0. 
Uh, or, of course, you could combine the two categories. So you could do a mixture of moderate and vigorous uh, physical activity based on these MET levels. You can kind of mix and match. So rather than doing 150 minutes of moderate activity or doing 75 of vigorous activity, you could do a combination of both and kind of mix them together. Now, I, one thing I want to reiterate here is that when you hear 75 minutes of vigorous activity, that doesn't mean 75 minutes of sprinting, okay? So when we talk about MET levels, uh, vigorous exercise is probably a lot lower intensity than you're thinking. A lot of times athletes hear vigorous intensity uh, or people who are really avid fitness enthusiasts and they say, wow, that 75 to 150 minutes is kind of a lot uh, when we think about doing like sprint interval training or something like that. That's not what these guidelines are calling for. So for example, a MET level of three, which gets you into the bottom range of, of moderate activity, that would be walking at a very, very comfortable pace of 2.5 miles per hour on a level surface. So just walking on a flat treadmill or walking down the street, 2.5 miles per hour for a lot of folks is an extremely comfortable, very leisurely walking pace. It's by no means a brisk power walk uh, for, for most folks. But I understand, you know, people have very different walking speeds. So uh, don't mean to be, um, don't mean to convey any sense of judgment if 2.5 miles per hour is, is a relatively vigorous walking pace for you. But generally speaking, a lot of folks can walk at 2.5 miles an hour and not consider it to be a particularly vigorous um, intensity for their walking. Uh, to give another example, a, a MET level of 3.8 is associated with raking the leaves in your lawn uh, with a moderate level of, of effort. Um, there, there's also uh, a MET level of 3.3 associated with just general uh, kitchen activity. So cooking, washing dishes, cleaning up in the kitchen. So you can see that some of these activities of daily living put us well into the moderate range. Uh, another example is a MET level of five is associated with mowing your lawn. And a MET level of six is associated with shoveling snow uh, by hand with a shovel. Um, if you get up to walking at 4.5 miles per hour, um, that's usually a very brisk walking pace. Now you're actually getting into a, a MET level that's about seven, which is, is already into the vigorous category. And like I said, we're talking about walking here, you know, so you can actually hit the, um, when, when we talk about moderate versus vigorous for MET levels, you can get into the vigorous category without actually breaking into a jog. You know, if you're walking briskly at 4.5 miles per hour, you are above that um, vigorous threshold, which is six mets. So walking at 4.5 miles an hour is all the way into seven mets, even on a flat surface with no incline. When we, when we talk about kind of structured exercise, just to kind of uh, give a perspective of where, where things fall with these uh, met levels, uh, stair climbing at a very slow pace would be about four mets. Um, pretty vigorous resistance training would be about six mets. Running at four miles an hour, probably about six mets. Rowing at 100 watts uh, would be about seven mets. Doing calisthenics like, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, pull-ups, you know, kind of uh, body weight circuit training. You might be looking at a MET level up around eight. Uh, now, of course, these are rough estimates. You might be wondering, where do these all come from? And they come from uh, a compendium of physical activities. The last time it was updated, I believe was 2011 by Ainsworth and colleagues. So if you want to get an idea 
of different met levels for different types of physical activity or even structured exercises, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a really comprehensive website that basically is, is very searchable. So you can search this compendium of physical activities. I've mentioned on the show before, it has well over 800 entries for different physical activities and different types of structured exercise. But what you can do is you can say, okay, I see these physical activity guidelines by Piercy and colleagues. I see the duration that's recommended and the associated met ranges in terms of intensity. Now I'm going to go through the compendium of physical activities and just kind of tabulate, am I meeting these guidelines already? And if not, then you might consider how you might incorporate some physical activity or, you know, some actual structured exercise in order to get into the ranges that are recommended for general health and wellness. So we've got these three different strategies for implementing non-exercise physical activity uh, or little bouts of structured exercise in order to use cardio, use physical activity to support general health and general wellness. So that stuff's pretty simple. We can do exercise snacks. We can aim for a daily step count and use that as a proxy for physical activity. Or we can actually dig a little deeper and look at some of these guidelines, tabulate our met values throughout the week or throughout the day, and you know perhaps make some adjustments to get into those recommended physical activity ranges. At this point, we are going to shift the, the episode here and shift the focus to weight management and more specifically using cardio to strategically facilitate fat loss uh, when we talk about weight management. Now, there are many benefits of cardio type exercise for fat loss. So first of all, uh, and when, when I say fat loss, I, I, I think I should extrapolate that to say just body composition in general. So maintaining fat-free mass, losing fat mass, losing weight, these kind of all fall under the weight management umbrella. Um, there are many benefits, like I said, of exercise for body composition and fat loss. First of all, if you're quite inactive at baseline, it is possible that some recomping may occur. Uh, so there, there have been meta-analyses indicating that uh, with previously untrained people, even some pretty basic cardio interventions can lead to an increase in fat-free mass. Uh, I've even seen some interventions where a walking program led to an increase in lean body mass and um, most likely lower body lean mass just from using the leg musculature more than the individuals had been using it previously. So uh, low-intensity cardio may involve some recomping by, by increasing uh, you know, fat-free mass of the lower extremities, uh, but there's also some interventions with high intensity or sprint interval training where you'll see, you know, some some actually pretty substantial improvements in lower lower body muscularity uh, because there are so many high intensity forceful muscular contractions uh, occurring. So uh, with with exercise, one of the reasons to include it in a weight loss or weight management program is you might actually experience some recomposition. Uh, from doing relatively intense forms of cardio. Number two, uh, another benefit of exercise when it comes to weight management is that if your baseline physical activity level is low and you start doing more exercise, more physical activity, this can help recouple your appetite to match your energy expenditure more effectively. And it can do it in a way that reduces the likelihood of passive overeating. 
So there's been some really cool research indicating that there is this very nonlinear relationship between uh, between appetite or satiety control and uh, physical activity. So when we look at folks who have a very low level of baseline physical activity, we see that their appetite is not very effectively matched to their activity level. So if you're very, very sedentary, there can sometimes be this increase in appetite such that you are eating for reasons that are not directly matched to your energy expenditure. And, and a lot of times this leads to passive overconsumption of calories. And what we'll see in the research is as people start to do more physical activity, this relationship between appetite and energy expenditure becomes more tightly linked. And so we'll see that there's kind of a correction of appetite that occurs when you go from low physical activity levels to moderate or high physical activity levels. And so uh, there, there is some evidence suggesting that if physical activity is very, very low at baseline, you might have uh, a relatively high appetite level that is disproportionate to your energy expenditure, and you can effectively correct that mismatch by doing some more physical activity. Now, uh, that leads to a, a good question. Uh, what about appetite for people who already have a high physical activity level at baseline? So if your baseline physical activity level is very low and you increase physical activity, we might see that your appetite becomes more tightly controlled, better regulated. Uh, and, and so we might see a passive reduction in overeating. Uh, but if you're already pretty active at baseline and you increase your physical activity level, what happens with appetite? Uh, the answer is a bit complicated. So exercise does seem to acutely but transiently suppress appetite as long as the intensity level is high enough. So you can think about doing a really hard sprint workout within 30 minutes, an hour after that. A lot of folks mentioned that they really just don't want to eat. Or in some cases, they, they can't even think of stomaching a meal after a really intense bout of exercise. But obviously, that dissipates, that fades throughout the day. Um, when, when we talk about the overall broader impact on appetite, when someone goes from moderate or high physical activity levels to even higher levels of physical activity, uh, when you look at reviews on the topic, the evidence is very mixed, and, and it looks like there's a pretty significant degree of variation from person to person, from study to study. And unfortunately, researchers, to the best of my knowledge, haven't really conclusively identified the exact characteristics that would um, explain or uh, fully elucidate the variation that's seen in the literature. Uh, so some folks seem to notice that when they ramp up their physical activity level, uh, appetite is either unchanged or even goes down a little bit. Other folks notice that it, when they start ramping up their physical activity, they almost feel like there's a disproportionate level of appetite and hunger relative to their energy expenditure. So that's an area where we need a lot more research, but it does seem to be pretty, uh, pretty well established that going from very low activity to moderate activity usually uh, leads to a correction in appetite levels in a way that reduces unintended overeating. Now, a, a third benefit of exercise here when it comes to uh, facilitating weight management is that exercise increases total daily energy expenditure. Uh, of course, if we want to lose fat, we need to create a caloric deficit, and there are two levers that we can pull if we're trying to create a caloric deficit. 
we can increase our daily energy expenditure, or we can reduce our daily energy intake. Uh, so exercise by increasing total daily energy expenditure can directly facilitate fat loss through the creation or the establishment or the maintenance of an energy deficit. Uh, and then number four, when we look at the benefits of exercise and physical activity for weight management, there's a very consistent finding that pops up in the literature again and again and again, and that is high physical activity levels seem to be a very reliable predictor of successful long-term maintenance of weight loss. So for the people who are able to lose weight and maintain it for a long period of time, usually the folks who really thrive and really succeed in the long run with maintaining their weight loss are the folks who maintain a high level of physical activity. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services, and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case -case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, if you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association, and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. Now, that stuff all sounds great, uh, but there is a problem that we've discussed previously on the show, and the problem is as follows. Exercise requires a pretty big investment when it comes to time and just the physical effort that goes into it, and unfortunately, exercise typically impacts weight loss far less than we would expect it to intuitively and far less than we would even mathematically predict. And so when we talk about exercise as a tool for weight loss or weight management, 
it's it's a bit of an uphill battle because you will talk to folks who say, yeah, I tried to increase my exercise and I just didn't lose much weight at all, uh, or I lost way less weight than I expected. And the effort that got put into it didn't really seem to be matched by the things I was getting out of those efforts. You know, there was a mismatch between the investment and the return on the investment that was not favorable. And so to, to look at that more closely, we can lean on a study by Broski and colleagues. Uh, Dr. Eric Helms reviewed it in the Mass Research Review uh, when it came out within the past year or two. And basically, this paper by Broski and colleagues, which I'll link in the show notes, it was a sub-analysis from a larger study uh, where they were looking at you know, how different doses of cardio-type exercise would impact weight loss in a longitudinal setting. So it was uh, kind of a, an extended trial where they were looking at the effects of weight loss at different levels or the effects of physical activity at different cardio doses in order to see how it would impact weight loss over time. So um, there was one group that was doing about 800 to 1,000 calories uh, of additional exercise per week. And there was another group that was doing about 2,000 to 2,500 calories per week of extra aerobic exercise. So they had these two different doses. And what they found was, you know, at the end of this study, they brought participants into a metabolic chamber to measure their uh, their 24-hour energy expenditure in resting conditions. Okay, so it's important to recognize the number I'm about to say here does not incorporate the physical activity or the cardio that they were doing during the trial. This was just looking at like, now that you've been doing all this cardio, what does your 24-hour energy expenditure look like if we put you in this tiny little room and just measure it for 24 hours? And what they found was that 24-hour energy expenditure or daily energy expenditure dropped by about 4% in the group that was doing the higher dose of cardio. Uh, now, of course, they were not exercising in the chamber, so if they had added in the expenditure from their cardio, it, it, it's not like there was this huge reduction in total energy expenditure across the board. This was just looking at resting elements of energy expenditure. But what the study reinforced was a pretty consistent finding, which is that uh, when we increase you know, structured exercise or intentional physical activity, we can increase our energy expenditure in a way that still has a net increase in total daily energy expenditure. However, it's not as big as we would expect. We see that there are reductions in other non-activity areas of energy expenditure that partially offset some of these calories that we're burning during exercise. And so when you look at the totality of the literature, when it comes to using exercise alone as a weight loss intervention, uh, exercise is only going to cause, in most cases, about 20 to 50% of the weight loss that you would expect based on the caloric estimate of energy expenditure. So to state that differently, it's going to cause 50 to 80% less weight loss than you had expected from this exercise intervention. Um, and that's not great. You know, you, you don't want to tell people, you know, hey, we're going to do this, uh, this exercise intervention. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort. And the amount of weight loss you're anticipating, we're only going to get a quarter or maybe half of that uh, when it's all said and done. Uh, so, so that's a big challenge when it comes to uh, helping people use exercise as part 
of their weight management strategy. Uh, the return on investment is, like I said, only a quarter to a half of what we would expect. And there's two major reasons for that. So like I said, we can look at these indices of resting energy expenditure and say, okay, it's clear that when people are doing all this cardio, there's kind of an adaptive reduction that partially, but not fully, offsets some of these increases in total daily energy expenditure. So that's part of it. Another part of it is that some folks do seem to passively eat more uh, when they exercise, um, not necessarily in a disproportionate amount relative the, to the amount of exercise they're doing, but there are some folks where you know their appetite is really tightly calibrated to their activity level. So if you say, okay, do an extra 100 calories per day of exercise, if they're not also on a structured diet plan, they might just naturally eat an extra 100 calories of food every day. And so they are doing this um, this exercise and they are increasing their energy expenditure, but their appetite is adapting in a way that just kind of replaces the calories that are being burned. So there, there are two different things that are making weight loss, like I said, are, that are making exercise about 50 to 80% less effective than we would expect for weight loss, just in numerical terms. One is fluctuations in energy intake as a response to exercise, and the other is adaptive reductions in resting energy expenditure. And so that brings me to uh, kind of a, a more focused conversation or a more focused discussion of exercise energy compensation. Uh, this, this idea that as we do more physical activity, we will see reductions in non-activity elements of daily energy expenditure. This is something we've talked about on the show many times because it's a very active area of research. Uh, frankly, I would say it's one of the more exciting areas of research right now when it comes to uh, applied metabolism. Uh, th there is so much interesting research coming out in this area, and it's coming out at a very rapid rate. Um, you know, it's it's something that got rolling. Uh, a lot of interest started to develop in this uh, this idea. Uh, I would say it kind of got reinvigorated around 2016, give or take. And then just in the last two years, it has really picked up quite rapidly. Uh, but looking at it uh, just in a nutshell, we're talking about exercise energy compensation or compensating for the calories burned during exercise. And this relates to the constrained total energy expenditure model, um, which uh, I believe Herman Ponser came up with it. If not, he has championed the concept and really become the face of the concept. I believe he developed the model in, in, in its initial uh, form. Uh, so Dr. Herman Ponser author of the book Burn, which has become very, very popular. He's done a lot of work in this area, and his initial work was related to uh, a very interesting set of preliminary observations, which was if you, if, if you compare sedentary people in very industrialized environments, if you compare those folks to people in modern-day hunter-gatherer environments where physical activity levels are extremely high, uh, Despite these different lifestyles, despite these different uh, durations spent doing physical activity, uh, total daily energy expenditure is surprisingly similar when you compare these very, very different groups of people with very, very different physical activity levels. And so the, the question was, why isn't total daily, total daily energy expenditure dramatically higher in these hunter-gatherer environments where people are doing so much more physical activity than folks who are relatively sedentary 
and living in more industrialized environments. Uh, and ultimately, uh, this whole body of research has led toward the conclusion that humans do seem to compensate for some of the energy burned during exercise by experiencing adaptive reductions in resting components of energy expenditure. Uh, so in other words, if you're burning more calories through physical activity, it's very likely that you'll be, be burning uh, fewer calories while you are resting. Now, I mentioned that this is part of what we call the constrained total energy expenditure model. And that means that this becomes much more important when physical activity levels get very, very, very high. The idea is that there is an upper limit on total energy expenditure that is constrained so that humans don't uh, basically push, them push themselves into you know, a threatening situation where starvation is imminent just because they're highly active. And if you want to get really theoretical and big picture and kind of frame it in evolutionary terms, it makes sense. So if we, you know, spent the majority of our evolutionary history being hunter-gatherers, that would mean that we probably have an increase in physical activity when uh, when we really need to be cranking up our, our uh, investment in gathering uh, nutritional resources, right? So we certainly don't want to have mechanisms built in where the more active we are, the closer we get to starvation. We would like to have some cap on that so that we have the ability to uh, go out and hunt and gather food when we really need it. Uh, so from an evolutionary perspective, there are a number of different reasons that it would be highly protective to have some, some upper limit on total energy expenditure so that we don't have to just gather really infeasible or unfeasible amounts of food in order to keep ourselves alive and keep ourselves from starving. So just in order to gather enough resources to maintain uh, biological viability and not starve to death, it would be very advantageous to have some upper cap on total energy expenditure. Now, the average magnitude of compensation that we see is, based on the, the best evidence available, around 30% of compensation. So what that means is if you do 100 calories worth of exercise, total daily energy expenditure only goes up by 70 calories. You've compensated 30%, which means 30 of those 100 calories have been uh, made up for by reductions in resting energy expenditure. So again, uh, if you thought you were increasing your um, total daily energy expenditure by 200 calories by doing extra exercise, you're probably only going to get about 70% of the anticipated increase in total daily energy expenditure. You're probably going to compensate for the other 30%. Um, <clears throat> I should mention, this relationship is not linear, and it seems to differ quite a bit from person to person. So 30% is kind of the average value but when we look at the research, we see that there are plenty of folks who seem to be only experiencing about 10% compensation. So they're getting 90% of, of the investment that they're putting in, uh, in terms of to increasing total daily energy expenditure. And then we also see that uh, there are plenty of folks who are experiencing up to 50% energy compensation. So they're only getting 50% of their return on investment when it comes to investing exercise for the outcome of increasing total daily energy expenditure. So uh, average is around 30% compensation, but it varies a lot. 
most people find themselves somewhere between 10 and 50 uh, 10 and 50% compensation and there are a few factors that have been identified when we try to actually explain why are some people compensating more than others uh one and the most important one in my opinion is just total physical activity level like i said the idea with this model is not that everyone has the same total daily energy expenditure it's that there is an upper limit that that where we start to see energy expenditure getting capped or constrained. So what that means is when we look at the research, when, when someone is starting with a very low physical activity level, very, very low total daily energy expenditure, if they increase their physical activity a little bit and they move their expenditure up, but it's still quite low in absolute terms, we don't really see a lot of compensation. Uh, they are not threatening that upper limit of human energy expenditure. So when we look at low levels of activity and low levels of total energy expenditure, we really don't see a lot of compensation. When we see people who are already very active and burning a ton of calories, when those folks increase their energy or their, their physical activity, we see much higher levels of compensation because they are actually bumping up near that area where, you know, it seems like there are some kind of corrective forces uh, from a biological perspective that are trying to constrain or cap this upper limit of total energy expenditure. So the relationship is extremely nonlinear. We see very minimal uh, uh, exercise energy compensation for people with low activity level, low energy expenditure, but we see a very high level of compensation for people who are doing a ton of physical activity and already have extremely high total daily energy expenditure. Uh, another factor that comes into play when it comes to uh, the level of compensation that someone experiences would be energy balance. Uh, there's been some really fascinating research indicating that someone who is in an energy deficit, so someone who is, for example, doing an intentional weight loss program, they seem to experience a higher degree of compensation uh, compared to someone who is in neutral energy balance or someone who is in an energy surplus, uh, which <clears throat> generally makes sense. If the goal here is to essentially conserve resources, when someone is already in an energy deficit, uh, you know, all of the biological cues pertaining to energy availability are starting to convey some warning signs, you know, saying, hey, it looks like energy is a bit scarce here. We might want to be very conservative about how we are allocating energy expenditure, and we might want to cap it if we can. And so what we see here is that when people are already in an energy deficit and perceived energy availability is already low, uh, if they increase their physical activity, they seem to have a higher level of energy compensation. And so that shows us that there seems to be a convergence here of two different topics. One is exercise energy compensation, uh, and the other is just good old-fashioned metabolic adaptation. When energy level is low, uh, or, or when energy availability is low, we have these conservation mechanisms to reduce energy expenditure, and it seems like um, when we are doing more exercise, Exercise energy compensation is one of many levers that we can pull during an energy deficit just just to try to make sure that we are not, um, you know, getting into a spot uh, physiologically where we have 
a critically low level of energy availability. So when we are dieting, we experience metabolic adaptation to some extent, you know, cardio aside, the body is trying to downregulate energy expenditure to save energy and ultimately prevent starvation. And so it makes sense that if we then introduce an, an, uh, an increase in physical activity or cardio exercise, we see that that is yet another area where during an energy deficit, the body is going to try to essentially limit the impact on energy expenditure. So without question, we see more exercise energy compensation in people who are already exercising a ton and have a high level of energy expenditure. We also see it in people who are, we see heightened levels of exercise energy compensation among people who are in negative energy balance or people who are in a caloric deficit. And then the third factor that seems to be popping up in the literature that predicts an individual's level of compensation is BMI. Um, but we need some more research before we can actually act upon this observation. So when we look at observational studies, we can see that compensation values typically tend to be higher in people who have higher BMIs and higher body fat percentages, but we really don't know why, and we don't really know the, the direction of causation. So we don't know if people get to a high BMI because they have high levels of exercise energy compensation, or if it's the other way around, where people start to experience higher levels of exercise energy compensation because they've gotten to a higher BMI, until we can start to parse out the uh, causative links that are underlying these observations, there's not much we can do with the observations other than observe them and, and simply acknowledge them. So compensation levels do seem to be higher in people with higher BMIs, uh, but we do not know which event precedes the other and we don't necessarily know if one causes the other. There could be a completely, uh, there, there could be a completely separate factor that is explaining this relationship, such that neither of those things is causing the other. It can be a much more complicated scenario with other factors that are at play. So for now, we don't really know how to use that BMI observation, in my opinion, but it is worth noting. So. All this stuff is good. Uh, you know, th this all makes sense. We've talked about uh, the 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 ways in which cardio can uh, impact fat loss and weight management. But a good question is how you would actually go about applying this, right? So, what I mean by that is, if you're trying to facilitate fat loss, um, you know, what you really want to do is figure out how a particular change in exercise will actually impact your energy deficit. You know, we're trying to manipulate the energy deficit so that we can facilitate fat loss. And in order to do that, you know, we basically need to figure out how we can truly estimate how much a specific exercise bout is going to increase total daily energy expenditure. Um, that is how we start to piece this together and figure out how to manipulate an energy deficit using exercise. We have to figure out how much will this exercise increase my total daily energy expenditure, and then we have to figure out what is my total daily energy intake, and how do I manipulate the two to create the size of energy deficit that I need to facilitate my weight loss goal. Now, there are some challenges here. Uh, it is hard to get good information about the energy cost of a given exercise bout. There are so many factors at play um, when you talk about 
something as simple as walking, you know, how many calories do you burn walking? Well, it depends. How quickly are you walking? Are you walking uphill or downhill? When you start to look at an exercise bout and trying to quantify the total energy cost, there are a lot of factors and a lot of details that go into it, which makes it hard to just use generalizable values. Uh, another issue is, as we've discussed, you need to comp you need to uh, basically estimate your likely compensation value when it comes to exercise energy compensation, and you need to account for that in the estimate. So we could determine that on average, or, or we could determine that a particular exercise bout is supposed to increase your energy expenditure by 100 calories. But for some people, it's going to increase by 90. For others, it's going to increase by 50. Because of this exercise energy compensation, we need to estimate your individualized uh, most likely compensation level and then factor that into the mathematics. And then finally, if we're trying to see how an exercise bout is going to increase uh, total daily energy expenditure, we need to frame this calculation relative to our resting energy expenditure, which of course needs to be an individualized estimate. Uh, the reason being, when you do an hour of physical activity, that's not truly just an added value uh, to your energy expenditure. You are doing an hour of physical activity and you are subtracting an hour of rest. And so you need to account for the fact that you are doing physical activity instead of an alternative reality where you were resting for that same amount of time. So as we're, we're running through the numbers and trying to figure out how an exercise bout is going to impact our energy deficit and our total daily energy expenditure, we need to combine all these different factors. What is my resting energy expenditure? What is the energy cost of the bout typically? And then how will my perceived, uh, you know, most likely compensation value actually impact all of, you know, this entire estimate? So that's a lot of work to do. Uh, that is a lot of digging around and finding things and, and doing calculations. And so for that reason, uh, the macro factor team made a calculator that does all of this for you. And so I'm going to link that in the, the show notes for today's episode. All you need to do is follow the link, enter some very, very basic information about yourself, your intended exercise bout, and the calculator takes over from there. It has, uh, it, it's already preloaded with a really robust selection of different types of exercise at different intensities. Uh, and so if you use the exercise calorie calculator, uh, I think you'll find that it's very, very comprehensive and it does give uh, a very individualized estimate of, you know, for your body and the, the information you entered, for the exercise bout that you're planning to do, here is our best estimate uh, of how much it's going to increase your total daily energy expenditure. And we also give a range. So we say, here's our best estimate, but it's probably going to be somewhere between value X and value Y. So moving forward, uh, when we talk about cardio, there's one common question that I think really needs to be addressed. And that is, um, should I be doing, like what, what intensity level should I be doing? Should I be doing sprint interval training, high intensity interval training, moderate intensity, steady state, low intensity, steady state. We talked about all these different types of structured cardio. And the short answer is for body comp, it probably doesn't matter. So there's a really excellent uh, meta-analysis by James Steele and his research group where they were looking at the effects 
of higher versus lower intensity approaches to cardio and how they impacted uh, both fat mass and fat-free mass. What they found was that neither form of cardio led to substantially better or worse changes in body composition. Uh, both of them led to pretty modest increases in fat-free mass and pretty modest reductions in fat mass. Uh, again, and of course, the effects would be much larger if you paired it with a specific diet intervention. But as we've stated previously, cardio on its own, unlikely to make really dramatic changes in body composition unless you're doing a pretty tremendous amount. When we look at most of the studies, uh, comparing high and lower, lower intensity uh, approaches to cardio, they tend to have similar effects on body composition. And the effects generally are pretty modest unless you're combining it with, with some type of dietary intervention. So when it comes to choosing between interval training versus continuous exercise, high intensity versus low intensity, you really want to let your preference guide that decision. There's no right or wrong answer there. And I know that there might be some skepticism when you hear that. It's very possible that you've heard some pretty extraordinary claims about high-intensity interval training. So, for example, you might have heard that high-intensity interval training uh, is better for lowering mortality risk or that it will double your endurance performance after only 15 minutes of training for two weeks at a time. Um, you know, you might have heard that one minute of this high intensity interval training is equivalent to 45 minutes of moderate intensity steady state exercise. You might have heard that this interval training is more enjoyable, more pleasant, or that it leads to longer term adherence uh, when you compare it to lower intensity steady state alternatives. Um, because of all these uh, common claims that, that really make a big splash uh, when they get shared by news outlets, I wanted to bring some attention to a really illuminating, really fascinating article series by Ekakakis and colleagues. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly, um, but Dr. Ekakakis, I, I was corresponding with him recently uh, about this work, and it, it's a really, from what I've seen, it is a really tremendous, it's a six-part article series uh, of peer-reviewed scientific articles so far Part two and part four have been published in journals, and the other parts of what I believe is a six-part series uh, should be getting published in the near future. So uh, parts two and four uh, collectively basically debunk all the claims that I just ran through, and they do it in a way that is very rigorous, very thorough, frankly, very impressive uh, from, from the perspective of someone who critiques research on a regular basis. Uh, this article series by Ekakakis and colleagues, uh, so far I've seen parts two and four, very impressive and does a lot of great work in debunking some of these common myths and misconceptions and uh, exaggerations about high intensity exercise. Now, I want to be super clear. This does not mean that high intensity interval training or that sprint interval training is bad or useless or that it's a scam or anything like that. This is a very, very effective form of exercise. The reason that there is a need for this six-part article series is because some of the claims about interval training have become overblown. You know, when you see some of these claims, you look at them and say, why in the world would anyone be doing steady state exercise? Uh, it looks like this interval training with higher intensity is just so much better across every possible domain. Uh, and and a lot of those claims are are pretty severe exaggerations. When we look at 
uh, a a very thorough comparison of high-intensity interval-type cardio interventions versus moderate-intensity or low-intensity steady-state cardio interventions, the really reassuring thing is that both of them seem to be excellent. But it would be incorrect to suggest that one is dramatically better than the other across the board. And so what that means is there is so much room, uh, so much wiggle room so that you can experiment with both approaches and let your preference guide the way. You can see, uh, you know, which one do I prefer? Which one do, do I enjoy more? Which one fits my schedule better? Um, you know, you, you have a lot of opportunities to do some guess and check figure out which approach to cardio works best for you. And ultimately, whichever one you go with, you're probably going to be ending up in the same place, whether you go with higher intensity or lower intensity, as long as you're matching the total amount of of effort and work. Um, Now, one caveat for that uh, overview is, of course, if you are trying to do cardio not for health and fitness, you know, not for just general wellness, not for weight management, If you're trying to do cardio to specifically improve your performance in a particular sport, or you're trying to develop a very specific uh, physiological capacity, if you want to get better at repeated sprint activity, or you want to do better at ultra marathons, if you're trying to improve a specific physical capacity related to a specific sport, uh, you need to make sure that you're tailoring your cardio to address the actual adaptations you're trying to induce. So it's a very, very different world when you're talking about cardio type exercise for sport applications. Uh, You have to be quite specific when you're planning out your training for that purpose. But when it comes to general health, general wellness, weight management, high intensity, low intensity, interval, steady state, you have a lot of flexibility to choose whatever fits your preference. Now, the final thing I want to mention when we're talking about cardio, is one last question. We've talked about it on the show before, uh, but a question that comes up a lot, is cardio going to kill my gains? And the short answer, um, you know, just to, to frame the conversation is probably not. Uh, a lot of people who are really into lifting are very hesitant to add any type of physical activity or cardio in addition to their lifting because they've heard about the interference effect that comes with concurrent training. So when we say concurrent training, uh, we're going to operationally define that as a training program that includes both resistance training and cardio training concurrently within the same program. So it's a program that includes some of both rather than saying I only lift or I only do cardio. And when we talk about the interference effect, we're going to discuss it from the perspective of a lifter or a lifting enthusiast. So people who are really into lifting are worried that adding cardio is going to interfere with their lifting-related training adaptations. So they're lifting because they want to get more powerful, they want to get stronger, they want to increase their uh, lean body mass, you know, they want to induce muscular hypertrophy. And there is some degree of concern among many lifters that if they do some additional cardio, it is going to interfere with those resistance training adaptations. Uh, So with that in mind, I want to just reiterate that these concerns in most cases are very much overblown and exaggerated. Uh, In most cases, the typical lifter really doesn't need to worry about it much at all. And there are 
three important reminders here when it comes to the interference effect and concurrent training. First of all, the interference effect, even when it's demonstrated in studies, it impacts different training adaptations to different magnitudes. So the interference effect impacts power much more than it impacts strength or hypertrophy. And you could put them in order. The impact on power is by far the greatest uh, in terms of the interference effect. The impact on strength is, is quite minimal, and the impact on hypertrophy is even more minimal. So most folks that are interested in strength and hypertrophy already, you can look at the research and say, probably don't need to be very concerned about the interference effect. Uh, another thing that's worth, uh, you know, a second reminder is that recent meta-analyses are reporting much smaller effects than some of the early studies about the interference effect. And that's because the early studies were basically designed to try to identify the largest effect possible. You know, if you believe this exists, but it has not yet been shown or demonstrated, you want to design a study that exaggerates the potential impact. As we look at more studies that are more feasible, more real-world applications of concurrent training or training programs with a lifting component and a cardio component, unless you're trying to induce the interference effect by going really overboard, what we see is that the interference effect seems to be very, very modest uh, in the more recent studies. And the meta-analyses are showing that, in most cases, it really probably shouldn't be a major pressing concern. And I mean, just a, a very, this is not a rigorous scientific take, but if you're really worried about adding in a little bit of cardio, think about the amount of time that a professional American football player spends on their feet doing what we would call endurance type or cardio type training. When they're on the field playing their sport, they are doing some combination of intensity levels uh, in ambulatory exercise. And so you would not look at the roster of an NFL football team and say, man, it, it's really tragic that all the time on your feet doing physical activity has caused this extreme degree of muscle wasting. I mean, these are remarkably strong, remarkably powerful, remarkably muscular athletes, uh, generally speaking. And so that, even though it's not a rigorous scientific take, it should alleviate some of our worst fears about how much adding a, a you know an hour or two of cardio a week might impact our resistance training adaptations. And then finally, when we talk about the interference effect with cardio, the key word is too much cardio, or I guess the two key words, too much. Uh, most folks in the context of a feasible, real-world concurrent training program really are not doing enough cardio to meaningfully, meaningfully attenuate their resistance training gains, especially when it comes to strength and hypertrophy. Um, if you participate in a sport where power is the top priority, then I think it does make sense to take a closer look at what you're doing for cardio to make sure that you're not going to induce uh, any type of interference there. Uh, but if you're focused on strength and, hyper strength and hypertrophy, the likelihood that you're doing enough cardio to meaningfully impact your adaptations is pretty low. Uh, so for most people, the interference effect probably shouldn't be a huge concern, uh, but there are some scenarios where it's a more pertinent consideration. Uh, and these were, were outlined by Greg in one of his uh, mass articles within the last couple years. Uh, he's been doing a great job in mass staying on top of this concurrent training literature. Uh, number one, 
if your capacity to recover from training is, is really diminished at the moment, you might want to take a close look at your total volume of, you know, both resistance training and cardio type training, and just make sure that you're not overwhelming your body, your, your body's uh, capacity to recover in general, right? So um, it's not that cardio in this context is necessarily bad. It's that if you are in a state where your overall recovery capacity is diminished due to things like poor sleep, high level of stress, large caloric deficit, in those scenarios, you already have diminished recovery capacity. So you just want to make sure that your total amount of exercise is not completely overwhelming. Number two, if you're doing so much cardio training that you're already, you know, stressing your recovery capacity to a near maximal level, of course, you're going to struggle to add in a meaningful amount of resistance training. And that's something that has to be navigated uh, very thoughtfully. And the inverse is true as well. If you're already doing so much resistance training that you can barely recover from your lifting, uh, obviously, you have to be very thoughtful about how you try to incorporate any additional cardio training beyond that. And again, that doesn't mean cardio training is necessarily bad. It means you're already training to a point where your recovery capacity is essentially maxed out. And so whether you wanted to ramp up your lifting or add in extra cardio, that's something that you're going to have to address uh, really, really thoughtfully. And then again, just to reiterate, if your primary goal for doing exercise in general is to maximize power output, so really explosive power, then you might want to take a close look at how you're incorporating cardio. But if your main goal is strength or hypertrophy, uh, you're probably it's probably very unlikely that you're going to be uh, inducing a massive interference effect by just doing enough cardio to facilitate fat loss or to uh, facilitate general health and wellness. Now, if you're going to be doing concurrent training and you want to take every possible precaution to minimize uh, the potential impact uh, on your, your resistance training adaptations, there are some best practices that you can follow. So first of all, you want to avoid an excessive volume of just total exercise training. Like I said, whether it's cardio or lifting, you just want to make sure that you're not throwing your body more than it can handle in terms of recovery capacity. Uh, another step you can take is when possible, you could put your cardio sessions on your non-lifting days, just trying to separate those things out. Uh, now, that's not always going to be feasible, depending on your training frequency and your schedule. So when that's not feasible, uh, the next best thing you can do is try to uh, do your cardio in a, a separate session on the same day. So you could have two training sessions on the same day, but try to separate them by at least six hours. So you could lift in the morning, do your cardio in the evening. It's not quite as good as doing sessions on separate days, but it's, it's pretty close. And then there will be some situations where it's just not feasible to do cardio and lifting on separate days. It's not feasible to sep separate them into different sessions. And when that's the case, um, if you're a lifting enthusiast who prioritizes your resistance training adaptations, if you have to do these sessions or, or these, these two different types of exercise within the same session, I would recommend doing your resistance training first and then finishing the session with your cardio training. Uh, <clears throat> another thing you can do 
to prevent just kind of totally overloading your capacity for recovery uh, is if you're doing concurrent training, you might want to think very uh, thoughtfully about how much super high intensity work that you're doing. Uh, a lot of folks tend to report, and there's some research uh, to, to verify that there is kind of an amplified recovery burden when we're doing really intense interval training. So high intensity interval training, uh, sprint interval training, uh, it can uh, take a minute to recover from that. Sometimes it takes you 24, 48 hours before you feel like you can get back into the gym and really give it your best in terms of your next uh, resistance training bout. So what I usually like to do, um, if I'm trying to just be as cautious as possible and as proactive as possible to prevent the likelihood of an interference effect, is I will limit the total number of high-intensity cardio sessions to no more than three per week. Um, and, and if I need to do more cardio than that for you know general health and wellness purposes or for fat loss purposes, what I will do is then, you know, once I've maxed out my limit for high intensity sessions at three per week, if I need to do more cardio, I'll just incorporate some lower intensity forms of steady state cardio. Uh, when possible, kind of along the same lines, if I'm going to be doing a high intensity cardio bout, so if I'm doing like sprint interval training on the bike, I'm sprinting with my lower body musculature there. I will try to schedule my next leg day for resistance training at least 24 to 48 hours later. Uh, and the later, the better in terms of just giving that musculature the opportunity to recover before you're jumping into another uh, pretty vigorous resistance training session. So if I'm running sprints or doing cycling sprints, I'm doing sprints with my lower body musculature. I try to make sure my next uh, leg day ideally is at least 48 hours apart. Um, but if it has to be 24 sometimes, you know, so be it. But I, but I try to space that out to the best of my ability. And then the final thing you want to do is just adhere to some basic guidelines for the intensity and the duration of your cardio sessions. Uh, so for example, I already mentioned that the easiest way to quantify intensity with these different types of cardio is to look at the heart rate range framed as a percentage of maximum heart rate. And what we're going to do is treat these different types of cardio sessions as relatively interchangeable. We're just going to look at one unit of cardio based on its intensity and its duration. So for one unit of cardio throughout the week, we could use low intensity steady state, which would be 50 to 69% of max heart rate and a duration of somewhere between 30 to 60 minutes. That, that's kind of what I would call a unit of low intensity steady state. And of course, these are basic guidelines, general heuristics. Don't get too bogged down in the details. This is just to kind of help people if you're going to be arranging this puzzle of how you're fitting and mixing and matching different types of cardio, I think it's helpful to get a basic understanding of what the puzzle pieces look like individually. So low intensity steady state, 50 to 69% of max heart rate, 30 to 60 minutes uh, in total duration of that training session. Moderate intensity steady state, we're going to be doing 70 to 84% of max heart rate. And the total duration of that training session will probably be somewhere between 20 to 45 minutes. High intensity interval training, heart rate, uh, when we're reaching our kind of 
elevated peak heart rate during those work intervals, that's going to be getting up to around to at least 85% of max heart rate. The total duration of a high intensity interval session for me, usually going to last between 15 to 25 minutes in total. And that means we're including the work intervals and the rest intervals in that total duration. And with high intensity interval training, I usually have my work to rest ratio somewhere around one to one, you know, so I might do a, a minute of work and a minute of rest, or I might do 30 seconds of work and 30 seconds of rest. But there, there's some fluctuation there. there. There's some variability. Sometimes I'll do one unit of work to two, two units of, of rest. So I might do a one minute sprint or a, a one minute high intensity interval and then two minutes of rest. Uh, so the work to work to rest ratio usually going to be around one to one. But sometimes, you know, might be a little bit different. You, you can work around that general range and, and find something that works for you. And then finally, sprint interval training. Um, this is going to be, uh, the work intervals are just maximal intensity. So heart rate certainly should be getting uh, up to greater than 85% of max heart rate. Again, the duration is in total going to be about 15 to 25 minutes in most cases. Uh, but that includes the work to uh, the, that includes both the work intervals and the rest intervals, and the duration is the same when we talk about sprint interval training and high intensity interval training. But the work to rest ratio tends to be different. So, like I said, high intensity interval training is not necessarily maximal intensity. So you can get away with a work to rest ratio that's only one to one. But if we're doing sprint interval training, we see that we we start to skew the work to rest ratio. We need to rest longer in order to actually do these work intervals at a maximal intensity. Um, so usually I'll do one unit of work to maybe three units of rest or sometimes up to eight units of rest. So the work to rest ratio could be one to three or it could even get up to one to eight uh, in, in terms of how we are um talking about the relative duration of our work interval versus our rest interval. Uh, so the total duration of the session tends to be similar when we compare sprint interval training to high intensity interval training, but I usually have more a, a longer rest ratio uh, relative to the work ratio or a longer rest interval relative to the work interval when I'm doing sprint interval training. Uh, so wrapping up here in conclusion, cardio, uh, and general physical activity is great for overall health and wellness, whether you're doing structured exercise or non-exercise physical activity. Uh, in both cases, this stuff that falls under the, the umbrella of physical activity is really, really great for overall health and wellness. Uh, cardio and physical activity can facilitate an energy deficit by increasing total daily energy expenditure. However, that increase is usually only about 50 to 90% as large as you would mathematically predict because of exercise energy compensation. Uh, so cardio can help with fat loss, but it usually has a smaller impact than you would expect. It usually only yields 20 to 50% of the fat loss that you would mathematically predict. Uh, part of that is because of exercise energy compensation, and part of that is due to uh, changes in appetite and energy intake, which of course we can control and attenuate if we do our cardio intervention in conjunction with a calorie-restricted diet or some type of structured diet intervention. 
now, I, I don't want to suggest that cardio always causes an increase in energy intake because like I said previously, um, cardio can actually improve and enhance appetite regulation for people who are relatively sedentary at baseline. Uh, so for someone who's really sedentary at baseline, uh, you know, incorporating cardio as part of a weight loss strategy is a really good idea for helping uh, kind of recalibrate appetite to their energy expenditure level. And as I mentioned previously, physical activity is a very reliable predictor of long-term weight loss success. So appetite stuff aside, it does seem that as a general approach to weight loss, it is a pretty good idea to incorporate a relatively high level of physical activity, whether that's coming from non-exercise physical activity or coming from structured cardio. Um, a couple things, uh, you know, something that people worry about a lot that they probably shouldn't worry about as much, just to reiterate, a lot of folks tend to worry that if they add some cardio, it's going to totally kill their resistance training gains. Um, that concern is largely overblown. And the the requirement to really worry about the interference effect is restricted to some pretty specific scenarios and applications. For most folks who are doing a feasible program that they can work into their day-to-day -day life, and for folks who are focused on strength and hypertrophy specifically, the interference effect uh, as it pertains to concurrent training, probably not something that you have to worry about too much. Uh, and then once again, if you're going to add cardio, uh, whether it's for health purposes or for weight management purposes, you can add whatever type you prefer, whatever type of cardio you like. So uh, in, in the broadest sense, whether you do non-exercise physical activity or structured cardio, again, totally up to you. If you are going to do structured cardio, then you're choosing between all different types of interval training and steady state training. Overall, high intensity interval training, sprint interval training is not you know, uh, consistently better or worse across the board when we compare it to lower intensity forms of steady state cardio. So you have a tremendous amount of flexibility to find an approach to cardio that works for you. And now finally, um, before I end this episode, I hope you'll afford me once again, the opportunity to make a shameless sales pitch for Macrofactor, which is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed with an incredible team of talented colleagues. As you consider the wide variety of diet approaches and strategies and weight management strategies that you might implement in the new year, rest assured, MacroFactor can facilitate whatever you're planning to do. Uh, first and foremost, it is a very fast, very efficient, and very convenient food logger. It has a huge verified database of foods, and it also has very easy and efficient workflows to create custom foods create custom recipes, and even share those recipes with your friends and family. So whatever your food choice preferences are, MacroFactor can definitely handle it. Uh, in addition, you know, we talked a lot about energy expenditure and, and cardio and weight loss in today's episode. One thing that a lot of people struggle with is trying to incorporate cardio into their dietary program for the purpose of supporting weight loss. The MacroFactor diet app is really unique in the way that it can support different levels of physical activity. And the real magic behind it is the fact that MacroFactor has a very robust energy expenditure algorithm. So 
as you're using Macrofactor, it is constantly using the data you provide in terms of your body weight and body composition in addition to your nutritional intakes. The energy expenditure algorithm is constantly reassessing and recalibrating its understanding of your daily energy expenditure. And what you'll see is by using this kind of backward-looking, deterministic uh, expenditure algorithm, Macrofactor is really well-equipped to help you incorporate cardio and physical activity into your diet program for weight loss in the new year. Uh, so in summary, Macrofactor is your diet sidekick. It provides all the guidance, all the support, all the analytics that you need as you pursue your fitness goals in the new year without infringing on your ability to make your own decisions and to chart your own course toward your fitness goals. So to learn more, go ahead and check out the app at macrofactorapp.com, or you can find it in the app stores. Uh, as always, thank you for joining me for another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We'll be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.